Father in heaven, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, for who you have declared us to be. And in view of that mercy, may you equip us and energize us and educate us to be the living sacrifices you have distributed all over the world. Father, this morning as we gather, I would be remiss if I did not again lift up the plight of the people in Palestine and Israel, in that part of our world that are enduring unspeakable fear, uncertainty, doubt, pain, trauma, loss, that you, the God of all comfort, would do precisely that. And for the turmoil that exists between the shoulder blades and between the ears of the people gathered in this place, would you also bring peace? Would you bring joy? Would you bring fulfillment? Would you steady and ready our hearts to hear from you by your Spirit, gathered as your people, for your glory. That's all. That's all I'm asking, just that. So would you do that and then some, that we would all walk out of here changed. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I do want to thank you all for being here on a, uh, a little bit of a strange weather kind of morning. Apparently, it's going to get a little... Can you... It's going to get a little bit rainy out. I'm sorry. This drives me insane. Mark, we've been in this building um, almost 10 years, and there's a nail sticking up. <laughs> and I'm like, I know I'm going to end up walking by, hanging a boot on it, and just totally face planting. I know. Sorry, right. I get it. I get it. I get it. There. Problem solved. It's okay. Anyway, <laughs> that actually sort of sets up what I want to talk about this morning. <laughs> this morning, we get to talk about a very delicate passage. Perhaps you got an email this week about it. It has to do and it has to teach with the usage, the stewarding, the deployment of our physical bodies. What exactly is our body for? What is its purpose? And how do we steward it? Oftentimes, we deploy it for purposes for which it was neither conceived nor constructed, like hammering a nail with an iPhone. That's a very bad idea, and yet we tend to do it all the time. So what is the deal with our physical bodies? What are we supposed to do with them? How are we supposed to think of them? Well, that sets us up for our big idea this morning, and it goes like this. The body was built for blessing. Now, that word blessing is not just to make someone happy. It, it has the idea of, of a eulogy. It is a, it is a blessing, is a, is a good word. It is saying something that honors, that edifies, that glorifies, that magnifies. It, to infuse joy into another. Our bodies were built for blessing, to draw attention to the redeeming, restorative work of God as Savior, despite what the culture says, despite what the world in general says, despite what our enemy whispers or even our own flesh might try to tell us, our bodies are spectacular creations with a social purpose. What we do with our bodies and why we do what we do matters massively. And so with all that, if you would please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read straight through 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And I'll try to unpack it 
a little bit rather efficiently, rather high level, rather PG, a little bit PG-13 here and there. That's just what the text is. And then uh, we'll see how we can apply this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The body was built for blessing. Now, we're studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been in this since late August. This is our ninth week together. We've been sort of loosely working through the theme of 1 Corinthians as imperfect church, perfect gospel. You might remember that the Apostle Paul comes through Corinth on his second missionary journey. He spends 18 months in Corinth teaching them several hours every single day. Can you just imagine the depths and the riches and the insights and the wisdom that he would have imparted to them for 18 months? He finally leaves Corinth. He goes and cuts his hair off to fulfill a Nazarite vow. He goes back to Antioch starts his third missionary journey, goes through the central area of what is today modern Turkey in Galatia, strengthens those churches, goes to Ephesus, sits there for three years, and while he's there, he gets a letter and a report about what's going on in Corinth. Sends them a letter. They don't like it. They send him a letter and a report and a retort. And so Paul has to sit down and write them this letter. It's actually the second letter that he writes them. We don't have the first one. The first six chapters, praise God, Lord willing, we will actually conclude today. The first six chapters are just rebuke after rebuke after rebuke, and the beatings will continue until the morale improves, is what Paul says. We're just going to keep correcting and correcting. And then in chapter 7, Lord willing, next week we'll start now concerning the thing, now concerning the stuff. But we're at the tail end of all of this language about rebuke. Remember that Paul is writing from Ephesus, in which... He's dealing with the church universal, that's the book of Ephesians, but he's writing to Corinth, which is dealing with the church local. How is a local body of believers actually supposed to engage, operate with themselves and with the world outside? How is that supposed to all actually happen? The book of Colossians is written to address all kinds of Eastern mysticisms that had crept into the church, it's errors and heresies. The book of 1 Corinthians is addressing Western errors, humanism, and the rise of secularism, and even deism, and all those kinds of things, and, and personal, individual, human pride. And so into all that, Paul writes this last section. Now, I'm going to walk back through this very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Your English translation may or may not have this first expression in quotes. It probably should be. I should tell you in the original Greek, there's no punctuation marks to really give you a clear indication, but contextually, grammatically, we know what he's doing here is called a diatribe. Now, I love the fact that Saul of Tarsus converted Paul the Apostle, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, tutored under Gamaliel, member of the Sanhedrin, that's like the Jewish Senate back then. 
is going to contextualize. He's going to respond to their issue with their form of argument, the diatribe. It's, it goes like this. Exhibit A, no, exhibit B. Exhibit C, no, exhibit D. Exhibit C, no, exhibit L. I mean, you just you put rapid fire, and he's going to use their mechanism against them. Apparently, after four years of existing as a church, these people begin to truck in some grime and some grit from their outside world. Can you just imagine believers trying to look a little bit more, behave a little bit more like the surroundings? I mean, I just I use your imaginations. It's, it's just, just go with me on this. He says, all things are lawful for me. Now, that should be in quotes, because apparently he gets a report that that's what they're saying. They are propagating the oldest, most severe heresy of the church. I'm under grace, therefore, I can do whatever I want. Now, it's interesting. Paul deals with it in Romans. He deals with it in Ephesians. He deals with it in Galatians. The writer of Hebrews deals with it. Peter talks about it in his first and second epistle, and John writes about it in his epistle. It's a big deal. For thousands of years now, Christians have been saying, well, I'm, I'm forgiven I can do whatever I want. God's got to forgive me. And Paul will say in Romans 3.8, if that's your mindset, your condemnation is just. You don't understand. That's a great, grand, grave heresy. They were beginning to do that. Hey, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't really matter. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, but not all things are helpful. So don't you understand? We're... We're just like everybody else, except we're nothing like anybody else because God did some stuff. Now live like God actually did the stuff. That's what we talked about last week. That's what you're supposed to do. Don't say, I can do whatever I want. No, God did some stuff. Live like you were washed, like you were sanctified, like you were justified. Now what's interesting is the church for 2,000 years has been trying to go the way of, and the great fun old King James words were licentiousness, lasciviousness, concupiscence. Those are just fun to say. There were always church people trying to add immorality to the finished work of Christ, as though that somehow honors the Lord King Jesus, nailed to a cross, dead, buried, resurrected, seen by hundreds, ascends to the right hand of the Father, soon to come again. I can do whatever I want. No, no, that's, that's a mind that is not thinking theologically. That is a mind that is not pursuing the glories of Christ. Now, what's really fascinating about that in the Old Testament, Israel never struggled in this way exactly. Oh, they followed after idolatrous peoples and the Canaanites, and they started to practice all sorts of Canaanite worship of Molech and the Baals and Asherah and all that stuff. But the Israelites had a different issue. And maybe this is the one you can actually relate to. Some people in Corinth were going the way of antinomianism. They could just, whatever goes, if it feels good, do it. But in Israel... For thousands of years, they kept trying to make it stricter and stricter and stricter. And they would say, where's my list? I'll make it longer. Ooh, that feels good. Where's that list? I'll make it even longer. Ooh, and then I'm going to impose it on you. Ooh, and if you're going to have a stew, you've got to stir counterclockwise on Thursdays. And if you're going to have, then you've got all these extra strictures to try to add to what God had said. And so they had lost their liberty. Well, the church grabbed the pendulum and threw it like this. Shroom! We went the exact opposite. Hey, we're free. God has freed us from all that stuff. We can do whatever we want. And so Paul addresses this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. The term is sumfero. Not to your benefit, not to your advantage, not profitable, not productive. It doesn't actually add any meat, any substance, any form to you. you, you might be, it might be legal, but it's not actually doing anything good. In other words, Corinthians or Bethelians, <laughs> 
you're so focused on what you can get away with that you're forgetting what you have been redeemed into and what you are to be accomplishing, what you are to be focused on is the blessing of one another, of those out there, and also the Lord your God. Don't be focusing merely on what you can get away with. That's childishness. Come on now, grow up and rise. He repeats it again. All things are lawful for me. Now, there will be three of these little expressions. The third one is hotly, widely debated. doesn't matter if it is or not. These three little expressions, there are errors or lies that he's referencing. But he says it again here in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be enslaved to anything since I was a slave to sin and shame and death. And I was bought from the slave market of sin and shame and death. I will no longer be enslaved by any of my attitudes or any of my actions. That is not why Christ saved me. There is liberty, but not unto sin. There is freedom, but not into error and debauchery. No, Corinthians, you have missed it wildly. Verse 13. Uh, Okay, this is where... We ratchet up the parental guidance and monitor just a slight touch here. And I can't help it. This is just in the text. But thankfully, even the Apostle Paul had a thermostat. And so he's about to write something and he just goes, nope, I'm not saying that. Their argument was, in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. If you get hungry, feed it. If you get thirsty, drink it. If you get excited, handle it. It's just biology. It's just natural. I sat on a airplane on a four and a half hour flight one day next to a gentleman from Pakistan. And he asked me what I was doing. I told him, and he he was baffled. He's like, I don't understand you Christians. Why fight nature? God has made us this way. God, whatever his version of God, why would you fight nature? And my initial response was, because that's gross. Didn't say that to him. Because I just had this idea of everywhere he went. He just, ugh, there's not enough penicillin in the Western hemisphere for all of that. Why fight nature? This is what they were saying. Follow the logic. You got a stomach, it's for food. Feed it. You get thirsty, take a drink. You got another body part, deal with it. And Paul, it's so undignified, it's so ignoble, Paul won't even bring himself to write it down. But that's the argument he's saying here. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Um, what? what? What's going on? This is Paul's very brilliant way of doing a Greek argument. This is Paul's way of saying, eating and drinking are amoral. They're not immoral, they're not moral. Eating and drinking are amoral activities, just like whenever you choose the color of shirt that you will wear, that is an amoral activity. And, and it doesn't last, it's temporal, it's ephemeral, it doesn't, it doesn't last for long, it's going to be destroyed. The food is, is not going to be something that we do for all eternity. We get to eat, and that's very good news, we don't have to eat. We will gather around the tree of life in Revelation 22 and the leaves are for the feeding of the nations and for the healing of the peoples. We get to eat. There's a wedding feast of the lamb in Revelation 19. We don't have to eat. You remember the story of Moses going up on Mount Sinai? He's in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights and he doesn't eat. Why? Well, there's just not much to get up there. No Starbucks, no 7-Eleven, no nothing. No, because he's in the presence of life itself. He doesn't need to eat. In the same way, Jesus, when he comes, he wanders the wilderness for 30 days. Why? Because he's all about keto, bro. No. He is indwelled by the Spirit. He is life itself. He didn't, it wasn't just Jesus-shaped willpower. He's life itself. 
We don't have to eat. So Paul's going, you're missing the point. You're trying to equate an amoral activity like eating or drinking with something that is a moral activity, and that is sexual activity. Despite what the culture might say, sexuality and sexual intimacy is absolutely a moral issue, no matter what you say. There's a wonderful, famous hero of the faith, C.S. Lewis, love C.S. Lewis, loves me, has a wonderful plan for my life, I love him. He's right about 99.8% of the things he has done and said. But about this, he's wrong. He famously said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. That is incorrect. That is incomplete. You are a soul and you are a body, both. Your physicality, your material is a part of your personhood, of who you are. Many of the evangelical funerals I attend are actually heretical because we'll say something like, well, grandpa's not really in there. Hey, I'm like, no, no, he is. Or there's a crime been committed. He's in there. He's in there and, and he's in the presence of his Lord. And, and there's been a, a, a horrible separation that God never wanted. God never wanted to occur, but it has. And the, the body and the soul have been torn apart when they were never supposed to be separate. That's how big of a deal sin is. And now they're separate. They will come back together. And so Paul says, no, no, no. You don't get to treat your bodies any way you want. God's actually a fan of your physical body. Listen to what he says. God will destroy one and the other, the body and the food. The body is not meant for sexual morality. And by the way, let me just say this again. This is a very specific technical word in the Greek. It is anything outside the confines of sexuality in the covenant of marriage between husband and wife. Full stop. I didn't make it up. God did. Take it up with him. Good luck. But for the Lord, your body is for the Lord. He's actually a big fan of your body. Let me, let me try to zero this in. We're talking about a sovereign God, the most creative being in all of the cosmos, the most power, the most availability, the most potency, and his very best idea was the person in your bathroom mirror. We, we, we think of ourselves too lowly sometimes. We think of ourselves too highly sometimes. But God would literally, literally not change one molecule about you, how he made you. Why? Because he's got a plan for you probably that you and I don't even fully understand or even begin to understand in all eternity when you are walking around being a blessing to him because the body was built for blessing. Listen to what he says. This is really astonishing. Again, in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It's a little play on words. The Lord is for your physical existence. Sorry, Plato. He said, ah, the body's all evil. Jesus could not have been uh, a thing or the incarnation is not really a possibility. No, because the body is nothing but evil. It's all going to burn. You can do whatever you want with it. You're gonna shuck it and then you'll fly away. I like that song too. Not my favorite song at funerals. Because this is who we are. And God is all for it. How can we be so sure that God is all for our bodies. Well, for that, we go to verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. It's interesting. The way Paul roots 
his answer to these questions of sexual immorality by the people of the church is he appeals to eschatology, the end times, and theology in general. He says, oh, let me, let me explain how you fit into all this. One day, the Lord's gonna return. You know how I know that? Because he's alive, you know what I mean? He's physical, he's a human being. I don't know exactly where heaven is or exactly what it's like, but I can tell you that right now, right now in heaven, there is one physical, material, corporeal human being. It is Jesus, the only utterly ultimate human. He's there physically. Now that's very good news. And Paul says, since God raised him, he's going to raise you as well. Your body matters. Your body is everlasting. Your soul doesn't get resurrected. Your soul is already everlasting. That happened at your conversion. Your soul is everlasting. Don't you understand whose you are? You are an everlasting child of the king now. You happen to be in an unredeemed body right now. But it's not going to stay that way. Praise God. It's going to change. So live like God's already done the stuff. He's going to root all of that and what God's already done in Christ. Christ is our first fruits, the firstborn from among the dead. May we be reminded, we are from the future, living according to that future history. The body was built for blessing. Well, verse 15. You remember in this chapter, six different times, he will say, do you not know? Do you not know? Or the new Eric translation, boy, are you ignorant? Yeah, clearly, if you're gonna ask me that six times, I'm evidently ignorant. He's with them for 18 months and he has taught them all kinds of stuff, but their awe has leaked. Their eyes have dropped. Their understanding has faded and their practice has eroded. And so he'll tell them yet again here in verse 15, do you not know? And again, it starts to get a little bit graphic, but this is, this is the parental guidance, please. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That's a, that's a sweet little sanitized way of saying, do you not understand that your physical body is one of Jesus' body parts? Slap your mind back to coherence. Get your mind out of the gutter. Don't start envisioning specific pieces and parts. No, no. He's making the point. Your body is not just your body. It is a physical expression, an extension of the work, ministry, and person of Christ in this world. Think of yourself thus. Your body, your physicality, your materiality is one of Jesus' body parts. That's stunning that I don't think most of us take advantage of nearly enough. You are body parts of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ, his body parts, and make them members of a prostitute? <laughs> never! Paul almost never answers his own rhetorical question because it's so obvious. Here, he answers it in the strongest possible Greek tense, meganoita, it's, may it never even be imagined or conceived. Ew, ew, patooey, patooey, spit, spit, gag, is what Paul says. Shall I unite a body part of Jesus with an, a temple, cultic, prostitute of Aphrodite? That's the new Eric translation. No, my gosh. Of course not. Do you, do you, no, never, never, never. Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. I say this all the time. When you squeeze Paul, what comes out of him is Old Testament. He just can't help it. He was so packed full and stacked tight of Old Testament scripture. When you squeeze him and when he's got a thought, he's always just thinking in Old Testament, law and prophets. 
And so when he's thinking about what is sexual intimacy, what is sexuality, what, well, it's, it's Genesis 2. It's Genesis 2, and the two shall become one. And he goes, you Greeks, you probably don't understand this. Let me help. It's not an amoral thing like eating or drinking or driving. It's, it's something mysterious and marvelous. It's massive. When sexual intimacy occurs, there is an overlapping and an interdwelling and an interjoining of personalities. Now, I know that violates every Britney Spears song that's ever been produced. Don't care. It's not merely an act out in space. There is a marvelous personality overlapping and interdwelling and interconnectedness that occurs in the confines of marriage between husband and wife. Do you, do you, oh, do you not know, Paul says? Well, then let me, let me help. Let me explain this to you. Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. It's not merely an act of drinking water or having a meal. It is a moral issue that is potentially immoral. Verse 17, but this is the most amazing thing. Here's the gospel. <laughs> Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes, wait. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do, do you see that sexual intimacy is principally a reflection, a resemblance of our relationship to Christ? Not to be trivialized, not to be banalized. When we are converted, when we are joined to Christ, we are one spirit with him. We are indwelled by the Spirit. We are joined in spirit to Christ, our King and Captain and Brother. We are loved by the Father. And so we just go and do whatever the we feel like? That is a gross misunderstanding, a horrific misapplication, Paul says, of the gospel. Don't you know? He continues. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. It's a second person plural imperative. Fugate. It even sounds urgent. Fugate. If I pull the fire alarm and go, fugate, y'all get up and go. Right? Fugate. It is, is run like you're being chased by a lion. Run. Now, Paul's probably got in mind here, Genesis 39, when Joseph, who is said to be a good-looking dude, was in the house of his master, Potiphar, and Potter's wife kept trying to seduce him. And he's like, no way. I couldn't do this. this is not, how could I do such a horrific thing? Not worth it, not worth it, not worth it, is what he keeps saying, which I'm sure she didn't really appreciate and didn't want to hear. Not worth it, no way. Finally, she gets him alone, and she grabs his cloak. Dude runs out cloakless. He fled. He ran out cloakless. That's how much he wanted to get out of there. Still went bad for him. She ended up turning him in and saying, hey, he tried to seduce me. And so he's thrown in jail. Bad deal. She wasn't worth it all the same. So Paul says, verse 18, very central verse, flee from sexual immorality. Now, here's the debated third error or lie. What follows should probably be in quotes. What follows should probably be in quotes. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. Close quote. I know it's confusing here, but just follow me. The word other there is not in the text. Some translators somewhere put that in there. It's not in the text. So it's more than likely this is a, a triad of three little arguments Paul makes. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. That's what they were trying to say because that's what Plato had taught. 
that your body was just a, a meat suit. You're, you're a soul zipped up in a meat suit and you're, it comes equipped with chemical impulses and neural impulses and have fun with it. It doesn't matter, it's gonna burn anyway. And the church was starting to graft that garbage into their midst. And so the, probably a quotation there, every sin a person commits is outside the body. But Paul's gonna correct that. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's the uniqueness. I don't know <clears throat> what you think about when you think about sin or when you think about sexual deviance or immorality, that kind of a thing. I don't know what comes into your mind. But sexual immorality really is fascinating. It is the only activity that changes from sin to holiness when a third party says some words to you. You ever thought about that? Rage, malice is always rage and malice, no matter how old you are. Murder, theft is always murder and theft, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been a believer. Gossip, slander, libel is always being a reviler. Um, being a drunkard where you cut off the inhibition engine of your prefrontal cortex and your thinking lobe. That's always sin, no matter what. But sexuality, the moment I as an officiant stand in front of you and I go, I pronounce sexuality stops being sin. And it begins to be beautiful and glorious and God reflecting and God honoring. It's the only one. They didn't get it then, we often don't get it now. And so our eyes drop, our awe leaks, our understanding fades. So one of my favorites, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, used to say it this way, when we sin, it's not so much that we hate God, it's that we choose to forget him. La, 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 la. I don't wanna think about that now, I don't wanna think about that, I don't wanna be bothered with that right now. And so we let our souls wander and we use our bodies as the getaway car. Paul says, do you not know? Your body was built for blessing. Verse 19. He's going to use a different illustration, a different metaphor. Or do you not know? <laughs> Are y'all ignorant? Do, do you not understand what's happening here? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, back in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he said, y'all, y'all plural, you guys, yuns, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Y'all are the temple of God in this age. You're the demonstration and the showplace of the glory of the presence of God. Here, he makes it individual, personal, particular. Do you not know that you are the temple, he says, of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. God loves you so much that he's moved into your life by the third member of the Godhead Trinity. You are not your own. You, you don't belong to yourself. You have been purchased. You've been acquired from the slave market of sin. You've not, you were not your own, for you were bought with a price. And, and maybe you're familiar with that wonderful passage in the book of Hosea, chapter 3, where Hosea has to go and buy back his wayward wife named Gomer. It's one reason you're never going to find a girl in the L&D ward named Gomer. Ugh. He has to go buy her back, and it was costly, 15 shekels of silver and a gallon and a half of barley. He says, no, you didn't get bought back with that. You were bought with the precious blood of the second member of the Godhead Trinity who used his body for blessing not for his own gratification. 
You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Not just in your mind and your spirit. No, what you do materially, physically, corporeally in the existence of the real world really matters. Think thus. Think theologically. Think with a biblical anthropology. Who am I? Whose am I? What am I doing here? Glorifying God. And you might think, as I often do, glorify God with this? Have you seen this? God is sovereign. He's not asked me to change the world. He sent the Christ to change the world. What he has done is united me to Jesus, indwelled me with his spirit, equipped me with his word, surrounded me by his people, and dispatched me into this little sphere of influence. And by God, I will not, by his grace, defame and unite him with filth. Body was built for blessing. So let me just give a couple quick portable principles, some applications that are hopefully going to be assisting and giving us some takeaways that we think theologically, that we think rightly as a result of walking through this passage. Number one goes like this. Delayed gratification is the mark of maturity. I see that Oreo. I will slap a cop to get that Oreo. Okay? That's not maturity. That's childishness. That's foolishness. But I have been equipped by God's word and I am indwelled by his spirit and I'm surrounded by his people. And I'm not going to be mastered by that. I'm not going to be enslaved by that. Despite the theme of, again, most of our pop culture, we are not merely animalistic creatures behaving according to our natural tendencies. To put a fine point on that, we must not be, certainly not those of us who are joined to and united with Christ. There are, of course, God-given desires and tendencies, and they are for our good and even for our joy. But the world, our flesh, and our enemy are all assailing us always with the lie that it's okay, that God's not there, or that he doesn't care. But again, he is and he does. A lot of our culture is in rebellion to the perception of religious institutions and their past moralisms or legalisms. And to be sure, there has been some of that, and to a fault, no doubt. However, The covenant community of God's messianic people, now the church, have been held to a higher standard of personal and communal conduct precisely because we are his and we resemble and we reflect his righteousness. And so we do not merely respond to our physical appetites and then try to justify it, declare it righteous. No, we've been set free from being mastered by those appetites. I'm not saying it's easy. I am saying Jesus won. I am saying Jesus won. I am saying that Jesus won. And so when you think, and I, I, I just can't, I just can't. But he did. He did. There's no super easy, surefire way to deal with or escape temptation. I get that. However, part of the battle is operating and thinking in wisdom before we were ever in that kind of situation where we might struggle. Decide in advance. Decide in advance on a daily basis. I always think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. If you build that thing, we're not going to bow. They'd already made up their minds and decided in advance. Whoop, statue goes up. <laughs> Look at that thing. And they're not going down. They had decided in advance, never in the heat of the moment. 
There needs to be some study, some reflection, some meditation, some conversation, and some preparation. We practice this stuff. We rehearse this stuff. Point number two. The gospel minus anything is nothing. Now, let me nuance. We say this a lot around here. The gospel plus anything is nothing. And the gospel plus nothing is everything. But I need to do some negative math the way Paul does it here. Some negative arithmetic of the gospel. We don't get to take anything away from it to try to cheapen it. The gospel is one singular ingredient. It is what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. And if we try to dilute that or water that down, we remove the entire gospel itself. Saying that our conduct does not matter is a violation of the good news and the great story. And then it actually gets worse. When we behave and believe that way, we are guilty of attributing gross sin and licentiousness to God as though he's totally fine with it. This God who actually sent his own son to become and remove that filth from us, that is a removal of the great work that God did in Christ. That's a no-go. We are under grace, and so we are free to live fully human lives like Jesus. Third point related to it. We are free from the law, to be the law. I rarely hear people who, who claim, oh, it's, I'm under grace, I'm under grace. I'm like, well, how's that working for you? Because you should actually be a more exemplary model of the kingdom of righteousness. See, Christ fulfilled the symbol of the dietary laws and all the rest of the outward activities that were prescribed in Exodus and Leviticus and the rest of the law of Moses. But the moral law is what we are now freed and enabled to follow Yes, we don't have to worry about mixing our fibers. We don't have to worry about dietary things. No, no, no. Christ has written the moral law on our hearts. Moral law is even more fulfilled. Actions must never, ever enslave. We must not allow ourselves to be in bondage to anything. I am free in Christ, but I am not free to be enslaved by sin. I am free to be in the service to my master for the sake of everyone around me. We don't adhere to a guidebook or a written code of conduct per se, we are indwelled by the very person of righteousness and he is our guide and he is our advocate. This was God's sovereign plan of grace from all eternity to send his son to redeem and his spirit to literally indwell every believer so that they could glorify God in the material world. Fourth point. God redeems. I've been a pastor long enough I've been a human even longer to know that there are people in this very room who are on the backside of a failure or are in the middle of a failure or are heading headlong into a failure. And I just got to be a voice to say, I'm sorry. But God redeems. It's the story of Hosea. It's the story of the gospel, there's this wonderful, oblique little passage in Hosea, which I don't want to be too graphic, that God tells Hosea that he's restored Gomer's virtue. <laughs> he took a dead thing and made it alive. He took a dirty thing and he made it pure. Because that's the kind of God that we have, because he's the only kind of God that he is. So I know when I preach a passage like this, for some of you it feels like, oh my gosh, they are shining a spotlight down on my chair. Nope, 
No, in fact, look around. All the spotlights are on me, and I feel it when I preach a passage like this. But God redeems. And so when your enemy comes at you for the failures you have had in your mind, on your screen, in your marriage, God redeems. God redeems. Do not circle the drain of shame. Do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? Blood-bought. Forgiven. Holy. We're just like everybody else. Except we're nothing like anybody else. Because God did some stuff. You get to silence your enemy and say enough, enough, enough. I am loved by the Father. I am indwelled by the Spirit. I am united with the Son. I'm part of the people. Shut your pie hole, enemy, and then have a nice day. The body, you see, was built for blessing. If you ever get confused about what's this body for, what is this material life actually for, I invite you to look at Jesus. It's always a good idea. Look at Jesus. He is the ultimate, the most complete human ever. He is the first fruit from among the dead. But until such time, he has given us these resources to operate in this realm. This is what God does at our conversion. I'm not gonna read through the story, but I would invite you. If you you wanna know the story of your conversion one day, did you know that it's in the Bible? It's in 2 Chronicles chapter seven, that real smooth part of your Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon kneels down with his arms up. It's like the worst yoga pose ever. He's kneeling down with his arms up and he prays and he prays for pages in my Bible. And he commits the temple to God, this this space that is gonna exist in the material, physical world. It's gonna be the place that people like the Queen of Sheba are gonna come because they wanna know what Yahweh is like. And he commits it and he commends it and he says, amen. You know what happens? Yeah. The fire of God falls in that place. And nobody had any doubt what was going on in there and what that place was to be used for. Nobody, as soon as the fire of God fell, was schlepping in a ping pong table. No. It wasn't theirs. It didn't belong to them. It was so that the glory of God could be exhibited. And that is precisely what they used it for until they forgot. So it's a cautionary tale for us Decide in advance to be the showplace of the glory of God for everybody around you. God is worth it. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for the morning. Thanks for walking us through these delicate, dicey passages. They're yours. They're your word. So I pray that your word would sound forth and not return void. And Father, for those who are suffering and struggling through these things, would you bring a balm of peace, of comfort, of fulfillment and joy and transformation? How about that? Would you break chains, remove bondages, convince them, persuade them that there is peace, life, and joy available now? Not that it'll be easy, but Jesus won. Uh, For the rest of us, Father, would you encourage us to think rightly, to to be ever mindful. This is why we gather together in difficult texts like this, to be encouraged, equipped, and edified together, that we would be, in a sense, uh, the microcosm of your coming kingdom, and that you alone would receive the glory. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.